All right, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Doug, pastor here at Parkview East, and it's a joy to be able to be here with you on this Lord's Day. I uh, want to just take a quick minute and wish fathers in the house a happy Father's Day. If you can give up to the fathers here, please. Happy Father's Day. Um, being a dad is one of the greatest joys in my life, and it's also one of the most significant challenges. Um, that I face on a daily basis. And so it's, it, it, days like this, it's a reminder for me just personally of, if, like just to be real, I have to battle with, there's an idea of the kind of dad I want to be, and then oftentimes there's a dad I feel that I am being, and there's a gap between, there's some distance between those two things. And so um, hopefully for, for the fathers in the house, you can be encouraged today, be encouraged this morning that, um, that God has is uniquely positioned you as a dad in the life of your children. He has called you. He has chosen you to be a dad for your kids. And um, it's an awesome privilege. It comes with a lot of responsibility. And it's an awesome, awesome job to have. For some of us, today is a day that may be a difficult day. Maybe we're reminded of a, a father who is in our life that maybe is, is, is no longer with us. And so there's some pain there. Uh, or maybe some of us here have a dad um, who, who maybe wasn't the, the, the kind of the, the role model that you would have hoped him to be in your life. And so for some of us, for some of you, there, there may be some pain as you think about Father's Day. I think regardless of where you, where you kind of fall in that spectrum, regardless of what your story is, um, moments like these, should, we should be using them to help remind us of a, of a great father that, that we all have access to and who calls all of us his children. And so this could really be a day, regardless, again, of what your story is, that our, our attention should be lifted up to the, to the great father of the universe, the great God of us all. And so I, I hope that, that today you're able to do that, kind of regardless of where you're at. So um, this morning is unique because we're starting a new series that's going to kind of carry us throughout the summer. We just finished up going through the book of Ruth. Uh, for me, that was a wonderful study. It was a wonderful series. I hope it was a blessing to you. I hope you enjoyed reading through that book and, and listening to, to that story from one week after the next. This summer, we're going to be going through um, kind of a unique series where we're going to be looking at, first couple weeks here, we're going to be looking at the life of David. Um, outside of Jesus in the Bible, we don't learn anything. Or we, there's no character in the Bible that we know more about outside of Jesus in the Bible than David. A significant, significant character in the Bible. And we're going to look at the first couple of weeks, we're going to look at several stories, stories that, that really God used in his life to develop him and to use him uniquely as the king of Israel. We're looking um, specifically this week um, at the story of David and Goliath, which is um, an awesome, awesome story. There's nothing quite like celebrating Father's Day and kicking it off with a little beheading. All right, and so uh, exciting, um, exciting stuff, and I'm going to go ahead, and if you do not have a Bible, we're, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and so if you don't have your Bible, um, Craig has some in the back, he's passing out, we're going to spend a lot of time in God's Word, which is something we do on a regular basis on Sunday mornings, and so if you don't have your phone, or if you need a copy of the Lord's Word, God's Word, Craig will come around, put your hand up, and he'll He'll give one to you, but I would invite you to turn to chapter 17 in the book of 1 Samuel. Um, one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. One of the things that's really, there's a lot of things that are really special about this story, but it's, it's really interesting, the uh, tremendous amount of detail. There's a lot of stories in the Bible. You saw this in Ruth. There'd be some real significant events that would happen that, that would take a lot of time, lots of detail shared, and then some other significant things would happen and it'd just be communicated with a few words. In, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we have a tremendous 
amount of detail here. And so it should, it should tell us that it's a pretty significant passage in the Bible, and it's, it's a famous one for, for good reason. And so I'm just going to read verses 45 um, through 47, and then I'll pray, and, and then we'll kind of begin to walk through the story. Then David said to the Philistines, You come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all that, and all that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Let's pray. Father God, pray that you would send us your spirit now, that you would show us your son in this text, Lord, that your name may be glorified. Pray that you would take these words which are eternal and which are true, and we ask now that you would write them into our hearts. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Before we dive into this story, I'm, I'm sure it's a story that regardless of what your, your story, you know, kind of your uh, history is with church or your familiarity is with the Bible, I think for most of us, we probably know how this story goes. Um, what I want to do before we get into it is I just want to share three common mistakes that are made when we read not just the story of David and Goliath, but a lot of times we can make them when we read stories, especially out of the Old Testament. There's three common mistakes that can happen. The first mistake is that oftentimes we can approach these stories, um, with, but we can fail to see them in their broader context, namely the whole story of the Bible. We often see stories like this as just one little story which teach us a lesson potentially about things like courage or bravery. Stories like this, they do teach us. They have a great deal to say about that. It, it certainly teaches us a great deal about courage and bravery. The story actually, though, is, is about God's heart for the world. It's about God's passion for his name. This story is about the great story of salvation, ultimately pointing us to a greater son of David who would come, namely Jesus Christ. And apart from viewing this story, that broad context, which is the story of the Bible, you will miss the point. Genesis 1 and 2, we're told that God made the world, right? He made it, and he made it really well. It was very, very good. But then in Genesis 3, we're told that Adam and Eve gave into the temptation of the enemy, plunging the entire world into sin. Then we read in, in Genesis 3.15, one of the most important, one of the most significant verses in all of the Bible. This promise after sin creeps in, this promise that God will send his offspring whose heel will be bruised while crushing the head of the serpent, gaining a great victory for his people. Then in Genesis 12, 3, we get this, this promise that's given to Abraham. He calls a servant. He, he tells him he's going to give him a land. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse 
those. This is a promise. He's going to bless those who bless Abraham, and he will curse those who curse Abraham. And all of the families through Abraham will be blessed. It's a phenomenal promise. This is the story of the Bible. Ultimately, is how God fulfills, works out this promise throughout history. It's the story of salvation. In this famous battle that takes place here this day in the Valley of Elah is but a scene in the great drama of redemption. Often we miss the point of stories like this because we don't put them in their broader context. Another mistake that we can make when we approach stories like this is, is it leaves us, what do we do with stories that leave us with potentially a negative view of God? A man loses his head. Are we supposed to celebrate in this? This is a great story. I mean, who doesn't love when an underdog emerges as the champion? However, it has a pretty gruesome ending. It is not out of place in the Bible. In fact, there are many stories like this, that when we read them, wanting to be people of love and compassion, and we hear the gruesome nature in which they play out, oftentimes it can leave us with a negative view if we're not careful of God. And it can be fodder for critics. I think Sam Harris is one who's a, he's an atheist, and he's a, an outspoken critic of God and, and, and the Bible, and he uses stories like this to show that he thinks God is some megalomaniac, some horrible dangerous creature. Why would we ever want to follow him and give our lives to him? And so stories like this, if we're not careful, can be a stumbling block for us in our relationship with God. Well, just quickly, I'll say two things. I think there's stories like this exist in the Bible because this is how the world is. Like there are people around us in other countries, in our country, who are losing their lives. The world is not an easygoing place necessarily. This is reality. It is reality. I think another reason, probably a more significant reason why stories like this find their way into the Bible, well, first of all, it is reality. They actually happen. But secondly, what they show us is just how far from Eden we have gone. Just how far humanity has drifted from their design. The implications of sin are all over this text. And all over stories like this that find their way, not just in the Old Testament, but in your lives and in my life as well. They're real. They're serious. It's a big deal. We have drifted from Eden. And the, the last mistake, which I think will be probably the most helpful for us this morning, that we can make when we approach stories like this. And you, you can hear me closely because you, you can misunderstand me. But I think one of the most common mistakes when approaching, just say, David and Goliath is that you see yourself as the hero. We read a story like this, and there's a hero who emerges from the pages, and our inclination, really a sinful tendency, is to see ourselves as David. We are the champion. I am the underdog who will emerge through courage and bravery and faith. I am the hero. I think one of the most Dangerous things you can do when you read the stories of the Bible is you can put yourself as the hero. Folks, this story is not designed to show you as the hero, right? So what we can do if we do that is we over-spiritualize everything. This is a lesson on bravery, a lesson on courage, a lesson in faith. 
Those lessons are there. However, what this story is showing you, what it's designed to show me, is that we need a champion. We aren't the champion. You aren't the hero. I'm not the hero. We need a hero. That's what this story is about. Really, that's what the big picture of the story is. When we look at the story, we see the characters play out. We have a tendency to see ourselves as David. Folks, we're not David. In this story, you are the Israelites, cowering in fear, facing an enemy who has the potential to destroy you. You're the Israelites. We need a champion. We need a hero. That's what this story shows us. In fact, I believe that's what the main idea of the entire passage is. It's about, it's not about the bigger they are, are the harder they fall. That's not what the story's about, all right? This passage is telling us that our God is great. Psalm 960, 96, verse 4. He is great, and he is greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all the gods, and that we need him. We need a champion. That there is an enemy who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy us. And that we can't muster up the strength and emerge victorious on our own energy. No matter the degree of bravery, no matter the degree of courage that we have, we don't have enough. We need a champion. We need a representative. We need a mediator who will stand in the valley, who will face the enemy, and who will slice off his head. That's what we need. You aren't the hero, but thank God he provides one for us. So as we tell the story, and I will kind of skip around a little bit throughout the chapter, what we need to see in the text, and it's what we need to see every morning when we open up the passage of Scripture, every Sunday morning, every time you open up the Bible, is you want to see Jesus. Because the whole Bible is telling the story of a great God, a needy people, and a victor who stands in between the enemies and, 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 and God himself. Somebody who emerges, who wins the battle. And so this morning, what we want to do is, we want, don't be surprised as, as we draw out similarities of this story, if we don't see our own story of redemption, our own story of salvation in these pages. You should be looking for it all the while. The first thing that we see in verses 1 through 16, is that we see that there is opposition to the Lord. I'll, I'll read verses 1 through 3 here real quick. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Aska, the Ephesus, Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. The Philistines were the pesky enemies of the Israelites. Their hostilities had gone on for years and years at this point. This, the first time that we hear the Philistines is all the way back in Genesis chapter 10, verse 14. They fought with the Israelites over things like land, and religion primarily. And this is not a, just a physical battle, but is also a deeply spiritual battle. Earlier in 1 Samuel, Israel got uh, their tail whooped by the Philistines, and the Ark of the Covenant was stolen from them. They found out quickly that was not a good idea, and so they quickly returned. You can read more about that earlier in the book. Um, and 
the Philistines, it is probable that they had heard that maybe there had been this, there, there had been this falling out between Samuel and Saul, the first king of Israel, and they really saw this as their opportunity, right? There was troubling within Saul's soul, and he was unfit for the business of ruling, and this news encouraged the Philistines to take advantage of the opportunity to gain some ground on their mortal enemies. And this is not, is this not how the enemies of the Lord work? Seizing the opportunities when the people of God are distraught, divided, and distracted. Don't be surprised when you see opposition in those times. I think the reality is clear as we talk about the opposition. You first have to recognize we do have an enemy. There is somebody who seeks to kill us and destroy us and to keep us from God. Namely, sin, death, Satan himself. Verses 4 through 7. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. The first thing that we learn about the opposition is that the opposition looks a particular way. What's the look of the opposition? They gathered here in the valley of Elah, 17 miles outside of Jerusalem, and suddenly a champion emerges. This is the only time in the Bible that we see this unique word champion used. It's used twice in chapter 17, and essentially what it means is one who stands between. It's a representative. It is a, a person who represents the rest. This person emerges from the troops Goliath, we learn, in case you don't measure things at home in shekels of bronze, I'll just translate it into modern English. Goliath was about nine feet and nine inches tall. He wore a coat of armor that weighed 125 pounds. His bronze javelin weighed about 17 pounds. Goliath, folks, looked terrifying. He stood out there. He was larger than anybody they had ever seen. He had more weaponry and armor than anybody could even imagine walking around with. He looked terrifying. He was a scary, scary dude. Something that maybe came out of the movie 300, potentially. I wouldn't recommend watching that. But if you did see a trailer, <laughs> saw a trailer of it, you might see somebody like Goliath walking around, okay? The Israelites were terrified. They forgot a very important principle as they saw this man emerge day after day after day for 40 days. They forgot a principle that God had laid down previously in chapter 16. When the Lord sent Samuel to look for Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, Sam, God tells Samuel, for I have rejected him. For the Lord, this is a key principle, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, the Lord looks on the heart. God doesn't judge people based on their appearance, and neither should you. He doesn't determine our usefulness based on our appearance or on our resume. The Israelites forgot that this principle applies to their enemies as well. The enemies of the Lord may look terrifying, but rest assured, brothers and sisters, looks don't matter in the kingdom of God. Notice, we've seen the look of the opposition. Notice also the sound of the opposition. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? 
Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Just like boxing matches of our day that are, you know, for months leading up to these great mass matches, it's, it's really more of a fight of words, right? Trash-talking one opponent, trash-talking the next. It goes on for days and days. So much noise and so much hype. It just goes on forever. So it is with Goliath. This dude talks some serious trash, all right? And he is consistent. Day after day after day after day, he stands in the valley. He calls at God's people. He beckons them to come down. Verse 16, we're told that, that Goliath, that their champion, came out for 40 days. This man just wouldn't stop boasting and making, this is key, a mockery of God's people. And there's a very important lesson that you learn. When you make a mockery of God's people, you are making a mockery of God himself. When you mock God's people, when you say bad things about his church, you say bad things about God himself. Be careful. This man comes out and the sound of this opposition, the sound of the enemy, he was proud and he was boastful. He was totally ignorant of how the God of Israel works and how the God of Israel brings up the lowly and exalts the humble. Goliath doesn't realize that God is about to use the weak to shame the strong. The other thing that's interesting about his voice and the way he sounds is that oftentimes the opposition, the sound of the opposition, if we're not careful, it can sound pretty convincing, right? So the Israelites see him come down. They're terrified of him. He looks terrifying. And as he speaks words, he's boastful. He's confident. And he, they are convinced that they don't stand a chance. It's unfortunate. The last thing we see about the opposition is the reaction to the opposition. Verse 11, when Saul and the Israel and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. The Hebrew army, the army of the Lord was paralyzed in fear. Day after day, his appearance, his words were wearing down the army. Their reaction was fear and discouragement. Not a man in the army of the Lord was willing to face this giant. No one within the ranks would step down into the valley to face Goliath. Not even their king. Saul, we are told, that from his shoulders up, he was taller than any of God's people. He, he himself wasn't even brave enough. The king wouldn't even go down and face this giant. No, because Israel was in need of a new king. They were in need of a better king, a warrior who would be willing to step down into the valley and crush the head of the giant. What they were in need of was actually a shepherd boy, a faithful, faithful servant. It's the opposition of the Lord, how they look and how they sound and the reaction, if we're not careful, that we can have. Let's look and turn our attention now to the servant of the Lord. Israel had asked for a king back in 1 Samuel 8, 24. They looked around at all the other nations. They saw all those other people that they were ruled by a champion, by a king. And they wanted a king like the other nations had 
uh, king, one who was mighty, who was strong, who was able. So the Israelites, of course, naturally looking at the appearance of those among them, wanted the dude who was taller than everybody from the head up. They wanted Saul as their king. Well, they got what they asked for, and it wasn't working out well. So God zeroed in. He actually had somebody else. Again, he's not considering appearances. God's interested in what's in the heart. God has zeros in on a little faithful shepherd boy. What was so unique about David that uniquely positioned him to not just be the man who would step down into the valley and slay the giant, but would also be a great, great king throughout the history of Israel. A few things that we see in the text that uniquely qualify David. The first thing we learn is that David, and as we talk about the servant of the Lord, this is where you should really key in and think through, how does this sound like what Jesus does? All right? That will be key to understanding. The first thing is that we learn is that David was anointed by the Lord. He was anointed by the Lord. God makes it known to Samuel that he has rejected Saul and he sends Samuel to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse where he says, in this house, one of his boys will be my newly anointed king. He will be the next king. And in verse 6 and chapter 16, Samuel goes to the house and when the boys brought him, he looked at the first one, Eliab, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But he was wrong. Jesse would bring in his seven of his sons, and each one it was clear that the Lord had not chosen one of those sons. But there was another son. Then in verse 12 of chapter 16, we read, and he, he sent down and brought in David, who was the younger one. Even Jesse didn't think that David would be qualified. Brought him in. He was ruddy and beautiful eyes and handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. The contrast between Saul and David could not be more significant. Saul's rise to power was quick. And while David's had this significant delay between his private anointing and his public confirmation, anointing throughout the Old Testament was a sign of God's dedication, consecration. Objects, buildings, and people were anointed, setting them apart uniquely for the service of the Lord. David was anointed by the Lord. The next thing we see is that David had a heart. This is maybe one of the things that is most familiar in terms of characterizing who David was. He is known as somebody who had a heart after the Lord's heart. All throughout the reign of uh, Saul, it was clear that the Lord had rejected him. And we're told in, in 1 Samuel 13, 14, and the Lord was seeking out a man after his own heart. Saul was not a man after his own heart, but David, God was preparing. He was seeking a servant who would be after his own heart, and David was that servant. So he was anointed by the Lord. He had a heart after the Lord. The next thing we see is that he was overlooked by everyone but the Lord. Verse 7 of chapter 16, God is not interested in appearances, but what's on the inside. God is not interested on the people pleasers. He is after the God pleasers. Even his own father, Jesse, couldn't have imagined David. He didn't even bring him in the house initially. Little young shepherd boy, be out in the fields. I got my other big boys up here. It's got to be one of these guys. His dad even overlooked him. A lowly shepherd boy. His own brothers were told, the scene plays out later on the battlefield, even his own brothers mock him. And they say that they misdiagnose his heart as being presumptuous and evil. Does this sound familiar? It should. Our Lord himself, when he would come, a better David himself would be 
overlooked. He would be born in a manger. He would come, the lowly. God would raise up the lowly to shame the proud. He was overlooked. He didn't meet the characteristics of the world. He was overlooked by everyone but the Lord. The next thing we learn is that David was a servant of the Lord. In verse chapter 17, if we were to jump into verse 31, I'm going to read a little bit here in 31 through 36. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man from war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and uh, took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught up by his beard. I caught up by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David saw himself as a servant. Now, he's saying he's a servant to Saul, but he knows primarily he's a, he's a man after God's own heart. His ultimate allegiance, his ultimate service is to the Lord. And as you read David referring to himself over and over and over again, you're, as a servant, your mind should be going to a much greater servant, right? Isaiah 53 says that even a greater servant would come. You, your mind, my mind goes to John 13, when before he heads to the cross, Jesus gets down on his hands and his knees and he washes. He serves his disciples by washing their feet. And he tells them, listen, you think this is serving. I'm going to serve you in an even greater way. And if you want any chance of, of enjoying the spoils of victory with me, you can't unless I serve you. Jesus was a greater servant. The next thing we see is that David was filled with the spirit of the Lord. When Samuel anointed him, it says, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. From this day on, David would be a spirit-led, a spirit-filled, a spirit-controlled man. Again, it's hard to miss the similarities if you know the story of Jesus. When Jesus was anointed before his ministry at his baptism, we are told that the Spirit of the Lord came down and rested on him. And when he launches his public ministry, we're told that he stands before the synagogue and proclaims that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. D Jesus was filled with the spirit of the Lord. The next thing we see, number six, is that David was zealous for the name of the Lord. If we were to go back into verses 12, uh, kind of, I'm going to read a good chunk here. And... Uh, yeah, verses 12, if you would turn your Bibles with me to verse 12, I'll read a little bit and then we'll keep going. Verses 12, now David was a son of the Epaphrodite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons in the days of Saul. The man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle and the names of these three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, the next to him was Abinadab and the third Shema and David was the youngest the three eldest followed Saul but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening and Jesse said to David his son take for your brothers an epa of his 
parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from me. Take these ten cheeses. This is essentially a way of kind of being like, hey, tuck my boys in the back. Don't let them get near that nasty giant you got down there, right? And, and he tells David, bring me back a token. He's talking about a token from his boys. Little does he know he's going to bring him back a token, but it's going to be a bloody, messy token, all right? David's coming back. Now in verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, our army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. He heard him. Now keep in mind, this is a, a boy in Bethlehem, a shepherd boy. This may be the first time that he had ever heard somebody audibly, like, without any sort of fear or hesitation, defy God's name. And we talked about when Goliath was doing this day after day after day, what, how the armies of Israel reacted. They acted in fear and terror, right? Well, when David heard his God's name defy, when he heard a mockery of his God, David had a different reaction, right? David didn't want to run from the enemy, David wanted to deal with the enemy. All the men of Israel then, when they saw the man, fled from him and were afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, You, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, right? I think what he's doing is he's comparing. You're seeing what's in Eliab's heart versus what's in David's heart. Why have you come down and with whom have you left those, those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another, spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again. David wanted to deal with the enemy. Everybody else was running. David steps into battle. He emerges out of the ranks. Then in verses uh, 31 through 37, we see how David puts on all this armor he prepares. And what is his, the last thing that we would say about this observation about the servant is that David is confident in the Lord. As he puts on the armor, what does he do? He takes off the armor. He puts down the shield. He puts down the sword, right? Why would David do that? Well, it says in verse 7 that the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. David's confidence is not in his armor. It's not in the sword. It's not in a helmet. David's confidence ultimately is 
in the Lord. He does not say the Lord can deliver me, right? He says the Lord will deliver me. See, David's been there before. He's been in the battle. He is he is fought bears, and he has fought lions, and each time it has been the Lord who has delivered him. And David's confidence is in the Lord. David understood something that we would learn later in 1 John 4, 4, that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. David sized up his opposition. He saw the opposition. He heard the same words, but ultimately his confidence was not in his flesh was not in his training. It was not in his ability. It wasn't in his excellent slingshot technique or form. His confidence was in the Lord Almighty. He knew that no matter how big that enemy was, no matter how scary that enemy was, no matter what words he said, what threats he made, his confidence was in a greater, greater, greater God. His God was much bigger, way more terrifying than that giant. The last thing we'll see is that there is a victory in the Lord. Verses 38 through 40, we see this. Then Saul clothed David with, sorry, jumping down, took it all off, 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David, David can talk some trash too, all right? Goliath ain't the only one talking trash. David, David gets in it a little bit here. You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. And I will give you the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And, all, and that all his assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. So the first thing you have to notice clearly is, is as far as the victory of the Lord is concerned, is, is who wins the victory, right? It's not David, again, it's not he picks up these five smooth stones. I mean, we see how it all plays out, but as you're reading the story, you, you, this little bitty shepherd boy, this great big giant, all the armor in the world, the sharpest sword you've ever seen, and here's David with five smooth stones. The, the idea here is to show you this massive contrast that it's not David who wins the battle, but it is the Lord, the Lord is the one who wins the battle. David shouldn't emerge really as the hero of the story. It should be clear that it's God who is the hero of the story. The emphasis, and I want you to see in verses 48 and 50, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to the, David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, slung it and struck the Philistine and his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and with the stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. It emphasizes the fact that David didn't walk up there with a sword. He had no sword. 
Then David ran and stood before the Philistine, and he took his sword, and he drew it out of its sheath, and he killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Right? David emerges. He kills him with the stone. He doesn't bring up his sword. Instead, what David does is he goes and he takes Goliath's sword. This is significant. And he slices off Goliath's head. This is how God accomplishes victory with the weapons of the enemy. If you were to fast forward to the place called Golatha, the place of the skull where there is a cross, we learn that ultimately the way that God defeats death is through death itself. He uses death's weapon and he destroys death, slicing off his head, crushing his head so that it would bruise his heel. That's how the victory is one. He used the weapon of his enemy to kill his epony. What, or sorry, the weapon of his enemy to kill the enemy. What does this mean for us? Just in closing, read uh, Jeremiah 23, verses 4 through 5. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness and the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name of which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. God is raising up someone who will come from the line of David to destroy an enemy greater than a nine-foot giant, an enemy that really we all face, an opposition that doesn't just seek the lives of the Israelite army, but also seeks your life. He is raising up a servant, a servant who will be anointed, filled with the Spirit, zealous towards God's name, who will be faithful servant, who's been overlooked but chosen by God. And we learn in Jeremiah 24, 7, just the next chapter, that ultimately what God is after is calling for himself, making for himself a people who will have him as our God, and he, we will be his people, and he will be our God. And the way he accomplishes that is through Jesus Christ, his faithful servant, who is zealous towards God's name, who comes to save God's people. Because we are in Christ, folks. This is an important thing. As we consider the, the opposition, the enemy that is before us, and there is. You have to come to terms with that. There is an enemy in this world. And as we consider the position now that we fight, this is very important, is very significant. Folks, the battle is over, and we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. How amazing is that our confidence can be in the Lord because the battle has already been fought and it's our opportunity to join him. God's making for himself a people. The battle is over, right? And as you consider your life, the question just comes down to, are you fighting for victory? Are you trusting in your flesh and your ability? Or are you son or daughter of the Most High, fighting from a position of victory. That's the difference. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this, um, this morning, the opportunity to be together as your people. Lord, and we pray that, um, Lord, we, we praise you, that you are a 
a mighty God who's greater than any enemy who can come forward from the ranks. Any champion that steps forward and defies your name, Lord, you are a greater, greater God. Greater are you who are in us than, than that which is in the world, Lord. I pray that we would remember that, Father, Lord. I pray that we would not try to put ourselves as the hero and try to... Um, try to be the hero of the story, Lord, but that we would surrender our lives ultimately to the true hero, the better champion, Son Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.